right, church, we'll take your Bibles and open up to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 this morning, Matthew chapter 26. While you're turning there, I want to take just a moment and uh, celebrate a couple of things that are happening in the life of our church right now. Uh, First of all, this week, we have nearly 100 students that are out on three different mission trips, and uh, they are serving in disaster relief. They're serving with some of our church plants, and I'm just rejoicing that we have a generation that is rising up to serve Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Another thing uh, that uh, we can celebrate today in March, April, and May, uh, I have challenged you to uh, commit to a once a week family devotional for 12 weeks and over 180 families have uh, committed to that. And uh, that is weird. That is not normal. That is against the, the tide of our culture for families to drive a stake in the, uh, the ground, to plant a flag, and to say, we're going to make the G- Jesus the center of our home. And that is something that I am just rejoicing in, in the families of our church who are committing to do something hard and awkward and not easy, uh, to have intentional spiritual conversations around the dinner table. But that is just something that I am celebrating this week. And then, and then finally, uh, if you weren't here last Sunday night, you missed out. Uh, we had our church-wide business conference. You say, Pastor, I'm church-wide business conference. Is that something to miss out on? Yes, it's something to miss out on. If you missed it, you really missed it because we had almost 500 people gather last Sunday night. And uh, listen, Baptists aren't like known for having great business meetings. Um, it's not in our reputation, but it was a sweet time as we came together last Sunday night and celebrate what it, celebrated what God uh, has done and is doing in our midst, but then also took several significant steps of action um, in the life of our church. And on every single thing that we voted on, we were unanimous. And that is not normal. Amen? Not normal. But it is a good sign of the unity of the body of Christ and the health of our church right now. It's just a good sign of God's good work in our midst right now. And one of the significant action steps that we took last Sunday night was to vote unanimously to embrace the Oasis Project vision to develop a building for our Hope Road Counseling Center and to build cabins on our land to be a place where we can provide a refuge and a haven uh, for people who are hurting. And so with uh, your vote last Sunday night, uh, we now have over $1.9 million cash on hand uh, for that project. And we will begin to break ground on the Hope Road Counseling Center as soon as funds become available. We're about $500,000 short of our fundraising goal. And so I wanna invite you, if you've not had a chance to give to that project yet, Uh, to give to that project. You can do that online or here uh, on our church campus, but we're excited about what the Lord is going to do through all of that. Well, hopefully you found your way to Matthew chapter 26, and we're coming to the second major event in uh, what we call Passion Week. This is the second major event as Jesus comes into Jerusalem for Passion Week and as we head down the road to the cross. And this morning, we're going to read a story that actually Jesus said that people would continue to talk about. And so you may not have realized it when you walked in this morning, but you're actually going to be able to fulfill today, you, by reading this story, you're going to be able to fulfill a promise that Jesus makes in this story. And so let's turn our attention. I'm going to read the first 25 verses which is quite a stretch, but I want you to to hear the flow of this text. Listen to Matthew chapter 26, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all of these things, let's just stop right there. 
That is a reference to everything that Jesus has been teaching from chapter 21 through the end of chapter 25, all right? After Jesus comes into Jerusalem in this triumphal entry that we looked at last week, he spends about four and a half chapters uh, in a teaching discourse, okay? And so we have skipped ahead now, and this is just a summary statement after he had finished teaching all of those things up through the end of chapter 25, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So in this one statement, Jesus sets up everything that's going to happen in chapters 26, 27, and 28. It says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the courtyard of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be rioting among the people. Now, while Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. And she poured it out on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, when the disciples saw it, they were angry. They were shocked. Uh, they were upset. The text tells us they were indignant. Why the waste? This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a good thing for me. She has done a noble thing. She has done a virtuous thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, notice this, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Listen, church, you got to fulfill that right now. Isn't that cool? Jesus said, people are going to talk about this for all time. Here we are on whatever day it is, daylight savings time a day. Here we are talking about it. Jesus said this would happen. Verse 14, then one of the 12 the man called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I hand Jesus over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him, about $3,000 in today's money. And from that time, he started looking for a good opportunity to what? To betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Go into the city to a certain man, he said, and tell him, the teacher says, my time is near. I'm celebrating the Passover at your place with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will, what does it say? betray me. Deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he replied, the one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is 
betrayed. You, you picking up on a theme here? It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And Judas, his betrayer, replied, surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, Jesus told him. I've, uh, I've heard <clears throat> two competing voices uh, for most of my life. Now, so that you don't think I hear voices in my head, I probably should rephrase that <laughs> to say that I have felt two inner impulses. Uh, I, I have been pulled in two different directions for most of my life, and my guess is that you have probably felt those two impulses or heard those two voices as well. The first voice is a loud voice. It's, it's a voice that is shouting all around us in our world today. And, and that first voice says something like this. You have only one life, so live it to the full. Don't waste your life. Don't miss out on anything. Try to experience everything this world has to offer. Try to accumulate every possession this world has to offer. Try to squeeze out of this life everything that you can. The, uh, the theologian slash rapper Eminem put it this way. You only get one shot. All right, now you're singing it in your head, aren't you? You only get one shot. That's a common view. You get one life, one shot, so don't miss out on anything. So take every trip you can. Uh, accumulate every possession that you can. Squeeze out of life everything that you can, and you will be satisfied. You will find joy. You will find fulfillment if you enjoy everything that this world has to offer. And that is a common voice that shouts into our ear all around us all the time. Can I get a witness? But there's a second voice. It's a quieter voice. It's a more subtle voice. And this, this voice whispers that maybe, just maybe, this world cannot deliver on the promises that it makes. And that maybe by accumulating every possession that you can possess and experiencing every experience you can experience, that maybe it won't bring you the satisfaction you thought it would. It's why it's so common for people to give themselves to things, expecting a return on the investment that never comes through. And so I've seen throughout my years as a, a pastor, people who are seeking joy through their career. And, and they think, if I can just climb that corporate ladder, if I can get that promotion, if I can get that pay raise, if I can make it to the top, finally I'll be happy. So they get the promotion, they get the pay raise. Sometimes they even climb to the very top of the ladder and they're the CEO of the company and they find out that it didn't deliver on its promises, that it didn't make them nearly as happy as they thought it would. Or they think, well, if I can just go and get my education, I can get a bachelor's degree, and I can get a master's degree, and I can get a PhD, then maybe I'll finally be fulfilled. I'll finally have a sense of self-worth. I'll finally be happy. And they walk across the stage, and they get the diploma, and they realize at the end of the stage, they were the same person as at the beginning of the stage, and it didn't deliver on its promises. 
or they pour themselves into a relationship, or they pour themselves into substances, or they pour themselves into taking every trip they can take, and they're, they're just trying to accumulate and squeeze everything out of life that they can, expecting that somehow, some way, it's going to make them happy, and it never does. And maybe there is a nagging something in your heart that resonates with that second voice that says maybe our truest, deepest joy can't be found in the stuff of this life. Well, those two voices, those two competing impulses are actually found in a contrast in this very story. We have a contrast here between two ways of living life. One is exemplified by a man named Judas Iscariot. The other is exemplified by a woman who goes unnamed in the story. I want you just to look at the example of of Judas, right? Here here we have in this story a conspiracy to attack Jesus. There's a language of of betrayal that's just woven throughout this chapter. You heard me repeat it as we were reading through the text. There's just a dark cloud hovering over Jesus in these scenes. But in the midst of that, there's one bright ray of hope. There's one uh, shining light in this story, and it's an unnamed woman who takes something very valuable and just pours it out in an extravagant act of worship towards Jesus. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But as the disciples of Jesus watch this woman do something crazy, extravagant, just pour out something of great value for Jesus, they have a very unusual response. Did you notice the response that they have to this scene down there in verse 8? This woman pours out this perfume on Jesus. And what does it say that the disciples do? They see it and they were indignant. That's an interesting word to use right there. It means that they were upset about it. They were furious. They were, they were mad. It has the sense of they were shocked into anger at what they were seeing. And Judas was one of them. Upset that the stuff of this life, the material possessions of this life, would just be wasted on Jesus. He says, how much was that worth? I could have been put to good use. That could have been used to sell and give it to the poor, something like that. But then we do see him do something even, even more shocking. Down in verses 14, 15, and 16, Judas, watching what's happening with this woman and Jesus, looks at this scene and decides he doesn't want any part of this. And so in the, maybe the act of greatest betrayal in history, he leaves Jesus He goes to the chief priests who right at the beginning of the chapter have been conspiring, looking for a way to get Jesus. And now Judas comes to them and says, what can I get if I'll just sell Jesus out? What can you give me? What can I accumulate if I just compromise and sell out Jesus The example of Judas really is what I see as the American impulse, the core doctrine that says that we will be most fulfilled when we focus on what we can get out of life. That's all that mattered to Judas. Judas's bottom line was the almighty shekel. It says that for a price of 30 
shekels of silver, 30 pieces of of silver. That's worth about $3,000 in today's money, about as much money as you can spend on a used car. Judas walks away from everything that mattered to him, from every relationship that was important in his life. He walks away from his own principles. He walks away from the relationships that mattered most to him in his life. He walked away from the best friend he had ever had and compromises even his own profession of faith for 30 pieces of silver. Judas is case study number one of what happens when you take the mentality of, I want to squeeze everything out of this life that it has to offer me, and nothing else matters to me more than that. Judas is an example in the extreme that he would betray the Lord Jesus for a buck, but I think he exemplifies actually something that is deep inside of us. It is a temptation all the time, and that is to betray the things that matter most of us just for the stuff of this world. That's what mattered most to Judas was the money. It was the stuff. It was the material wealth. It was the material possessions. It was the immediacy of the now. It was the 30 pieces of silver that he could see and touch. He didn't care about Jesus more than he cared about the stuff of this world. But then there's a contrast between Judas, who's willing to sell out everything that matters to him just to earn a little bit more money, And a woman who in Matthew's gospel goes unnamed. Matthew doesn't tell her, tell us who this woman is, but we actually do know who the woman is because the other gospels tell us her name is Mary. But Matthew, importantly, doesn't include her name. It's as if he's trying to draw more attention to the fact of what she is doing than her, her identity. It's like her identity just doesn't even matter that much. She's just fading into the background. And what is exemplified and what is held up in the example of this unnamed woman is this tremendous act of sacrifice. And look at what she does. She does something very foolish, very wasteful. In verse 7, she takes an alabaster jar of very, the text just tells us, very expensive perfume. And she just empties it out on Jesus's head. Now, there's a question of how much that perfume might have cost, and actually the other Gospels, the Gospel of John in particular, gives us a little clue as to how much this might have been worth. In John's Gospel, uh, we we get this detail that it was a pint of pure spikenard. Now, I know you all know what uh, the going price for spikenard is, right? I had to look it up as well, all right? Actually, Judas in the Gospel of John uh, suggests that this might have been sold for 300 denarii. Pastor, what's a denarii? Okay, 300 denarii, that is equivalent to a year's long wage. So this is very expensive perfume. Pure spikenard would have been imported from India. It would have been very hard to get. It would have been very rare and very precious. Some have suggested that this was likely a family heirloom that had been passed on generation to generation. It might have even represented the financial security of her entire household. That this one jar of precious perfume represented the security of her grandparents and her parents and her 
and her children and one day her grandchildren. This was the most valuable, precious thing on this earth that she owned. And the text tells us (laughs) that she takes that priceless perfume and just pours it out on Jesus. What a waste, right? That's a, that's a, well, now listen, whoever just said no. Uh, the disciples say that. They, they say that in verse 8. They look at it and they get angry. And they say, why the waste? Do you not know how precious that thing was that you just dumped out on Jesus' head? And, and, and by the way, there's a sense that their anger, I mean, before we judge them too quickly, there's a sense that there's like a righteous indignation here, right? Notice in verse 9, they say, well, this might have been sold for a, a great deal and we could have given it to the poor. But look at this extravagant waste. It just dumps out this priceless perfume. We could have put it to good use. I mean, by the way, Matthew chapter 25, I know I've not talked through it, but if you read back in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about how important it is to take care of the poor. And then Matthew chapter 26 She takes something that could have been used to take care of the poor, dumps it out, wastes it, and the disciples are upset. Haven't you just heard Jesus? Don't you know that you could have sold this? It could have been put to good use to take care of the poor. And so they are, I think there's a sense of righteous indignation from the disciples. Let's not judge the disciples too harshly here. There's a sense of of practicality to what they're saying. We, We could have put this to work for ministry. But Mary is the kind of person who loves Jesus so much that she isn't thinking about what's practical. She so loves Jesus that she wants to lavishly pour out everything for him, even in the face of those who are calling it a waste. Her question is not, what can I get out of this life? What can I accumulate? Her question, listen, that's the question of Judas. Judas is how much can I make if I sell out Jesus? Her question has nothing to do with what she can get out of this life. Her question is what can I give to Jesus in my life to show him how much I love him? And so she takes the most precious, valuable thing in her life and she just wastes it for Jesus. Even in the face of people who are saying, it's a waste, it's a waste. I wonder, what are you willing to waste on Jesus? Are you willing to waste your life for Jesus? This is the example of Mary. What beautiful thing has God given you that you can just spill out him. That's how much Mary loves Jesus. She is willing to just take the most precious, important thing in her life and just say, I don't care how much it costs. I love him so much. I'm going to spill it out for him. You know, there are a lot of people who, who will say to you that if you give something in your life or if you give your life for Jesus, that it's a waste. I remember I was uh, a number of years ago preaching a sermon in a church one time 
I happened to be at that time uh, uh, recruiting for a Christian college that uh, prepared future pastors and ministers. And so I would travel around the country and preach in different churches and extend a call for young people to come train with us and go serve God in ministry. And I remember a young man coming up to me at the end of one of those sermons and, and just saying, uh, Andrew, I, I really feel like God is calling me to ministry, but I'm just struggling with it because I've, I've gotten this scholarship to go study engineering. And my parents and my grandparents are telling me that it would be a waste for me to walk away from that and go be a pastor. And I've found that that is fairly common, even among Christian parents. Their, their daughter or their son will express an interest in ministry and they will say something like this, don't waste your life in ministry. <laughs> you have too much promise. Don't be a pastor. Don't be a missionary. Don't waste your life. What they're really saying is don't waste your life for Jesus. I met a doctor in Dubai uh, a few, few years ago. Our church was working there in the United Arab Emirates, and this doctor shared his story with me. He had been serving in some of the hardest places around the world for 30 or 40 years. He had come from the Memphis area in Tennessee, very successful doctor. He had his own practice. He had all the stuff that this world could offer. He had the cars, he had the house, he had the career, he had the income, he had all the stuff, an easy life. And God did something that shook him up and called him to take his giftedness and take his education and to waste it. And so he did. He moved. He left his practice in Tennessee. He moved. And for 30 or 40 years, he worked in war-torn areas, in backwoods places, in some of the hardest-to-reach countries in the world, places where it is illegal to go and talk about Jesus. And he served as a missionary doctor for decades in the face of people who looked at him and said, are you crazy? What a waste. And yet he was willing to take his life and just pour it out for Jesus. People around him said, you're wasting it. <laughs> That's what they were saying to Mary. What a waste. And yet, maybe wasting our lives for Jesus is actually what our lives were made for. Maybe, actually, it is what will bring the deepest sense of joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. Just maybe the most fulfilling thing you can do with your life is to give it away for Jesus. Giving your life away for Jesus seems to be, in Matthew's gospel, the, the distinguishing mark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it seems to be the case right here in this story. And in fact, it's no accident that these stories about Judas and Mary in Matthew chapter 26 come on the heels of Matthew chapter 25. Now listen, you have to go to seminary for that kind of brilliant insight. Matthew chapter 26 follows Matthew, Matthew chapter 25. It's no accident. Just think about the flow. If I had had enough time to walk you through the gospel of Matthew verse by verse, probably would have taken about five years. But if I had had that kind of time then you would have seen in Matthew chapter 25, the preceding chapter, that there are a series of three contrasts that Jesus makes. He contrasts wise and foolish bridesmaids. He contrasts um, wicked and righteous servants. 
And then the, the final contrast in Matthew 25, he contrasts sheep and goats. Sheep and goats. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not a farmer. I'm a city slicker from Houston, Texas, okay? There are some similarities between sheep and goats, especially for the untrained eye. They both make weird noises. They both have four legs. They both have fur. They both are on a farm, you know? A guy from Houston, Texas might look at sheep and goats and say, that's the same animal. But Jesus says, you know, there might be some similarities. There is all the world of difference between a sheep and a goat. And the illustration, the analogy Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 25 is even though they may look a little bit similar, the sheep know the shepherd. The goats don't. So you have this contrast, right, between sheep and goats, between those who really know God and those who don't know him at all. And then you come to Matthew chapter 26, and Matthew includes this story right here as an example, a living demonstration of what it looks like to be a sheep and what it looks like to be a goat. What does it look like to be a sheep? What does it look like to really know the shepherd? It looks like taking your life and pouring it out for him. What does it look like to be a goat who really doesn't know him at all? It may mean that you have righteous things about your life, right? Their obvious concern for the poor. That was righteous. But even though they were religious and maybe had righteous things in their life, the truth is Judas doesn't know Jesus at all. And so the distinguishing marker for Matthew of what it means to be a sheep and really know the shepherd, what does it look like to really know God versus somebody who doesn't know God at all, is simply this. Are you willing to take your life and give it away for him? That's really what it means to be a disciple. To be a disciple is not to, to add Jesus like a little bit of salt on your meal and say, I'm going to sprinkle a little Jesus into my life. I'm going to create a little bit of space for Jesus to enter my already full life. No, to be a disciple is to take your life and to throw it away for him and to say, I'm going to lose my life for Jesus. I love Jesus so much, I'm willing to take that which is most precious to me, and I'm, I'm going to simply spill it out. I'm going to simply pour it out for Jesus. Isn't this what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16? Just flip back a few chapters to Matthew chapter 16, and look what Jesus says to, uh, to his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. It's not going to be on the screen. This is just a freebie today, all right? Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 it says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Look at verse 25. For whoever wants to save his life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. You see, that's the secret to discipleship. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. It means you take this life that the world says is what it's all about. <laughs> the world says your precious life is what life is all about. But the Christ follower says, no, it's not. Jesus is what this life is all about. And I'm going to take my life and I'm going to pour it out for him. I'm going to waste my life for Jesus. You remember the very first time that you, uh, 
went out on a rope swing. Anybody remember rope swing out over a river? Anybody ever done that? I remember the first time I ever did that was terrifying. I was a little kid, you know, 10, 11 years old, went out with a bunch of buddies and we're on this, you know, edge of a bayou and there's sharks and alligators in the water, I'm sure. And, you know, the older kids, they would get on that rope, rope swing and they would pull that rope back and they would swing out and they'd do all kinds of flips and dives and stuff like that. And I really didn't want to do it, but they kept encouraging me to do it. And so I remember the first time I grabbed that rope and, uh, all right, you know, I'm going to be brave here. I'm going to do this. And so you get the rope and I would pull back, pull back. And and I remember the first time I I went out there, it was like, I'm going to come run. And I would stop right here. Like, oh, I can't do it. And I'm just clinging to this rope, right? This is life right here. And after doing that and being a weenie for about two or three different times, finally I got enough courage to pull that thing back and run out and swing out. And you remember the freedom you felt when you first swung out over the water? And it is, it's, it's terrifying. It's excruciating. And you're just clinging to life right here. But at some point, you let go. And then it's more scary. You're... You're flailing through the air and then you land in the water and you're under the water and you're sinking and the sharks are down there and you think you're going to drown. And then all of a sudden you come up to the top and you can breathe again. And it was the most awesome thing in the world and you can't wait to do it again. So many people cling on to their life with a death grip, terrified to let go of it. But Jesus says, if you're willing to let go of your life, if you're willing to just lose your life for me, you will find a life you didn't even imagine existed. You will find a freedom and a new kind of life you didn't even know was there. And that's what Mary does. (laughs) A year's wage family heirloom, the most precious thing I have, it's nothing to just spill out for him. Well, what could motivate us to do this? What could motivate us to take that which is most precious to us and just pour it out for Jesus? Well, don't don't forget the example of Jesus in this story. I left off the last four verses on purpose because I wanted you to see this. You have the example of Judas, whose bottom line is the almighty shekel. You have the example of Mary, who's just willing to waste the most precious thing in her life because she loves Jesus so much. But then Matthew puts this little text, verses 26 through 30, right here, and he does it on purpose. I want you to see it. Look at verse 26. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Notice this, which is, will you say this with me? Poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Just circle that phrase, poured out, because you see it in verse 28, Jesus says, I'm pouring out my blood for you. Do you know that that's the same word used in verse 7 to describe what Mary is doing? She takes this perfume and she pours it out on him. Matthew is using this word right here on purpose. He is trying to get you to connect the two. How can Mary 
pour out so extravagantly for Jesus? Because Jesus was going to pour out so extravagantly for her. Jesus is saying, I'm on the road to the cross. I'm headed there to give my very life for you. I am going to have my body broken. I'm going to shed my blood. I am literally going to pour out my blood for you. And Matthew puts that story right here to draw a big line for us to say, look at the cross. Look at what Jesus is going to pour out for you. Look at what Jesus is going to, to waste for you. Jesus came not to get everything that he could out of this life, but he came to pour everything that he was, pour everything that he had for you and for your redemption. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2, that he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. What a contrast of sacrifices. Judas sacrifices Jesus for silver. Mary sacrifices perfume for Jesus. But Jesus sacrifices himself for us. Sacrifice. That's the key to fulfillment in our lives. Just hear this big idea. I want you to chew on this idea all week long. Our lives are only fulfilled to the extent that they are given away. Our lives are only fulfilled to the extent that they are given away. And you say, Pastor, how can I give away for Jesus? It's by looking to the cross and seeing what he poured out and gave away for you. Jesus could have used his privileged heavenly position to squeeze every earthly pleasure out of this world. And yet he didn't do it. He poured himself out for you. And when you look to the cross <laughs> and you realize what Jesus sacrificed for you, the right response to that is to say, Jesus, I'm willing to spill out everything for you in response. You see, there is a sheep in this story. There's a goat in the story. But there's also a lamb. A lamb that was slain for our redemption. And when you look at the lamb, a heart of love in response says, I will pour out everything that I am and everything that I have for you, Jesus. Listen as I close to the words of C.S. Lewis. He says, the, the principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing, listen to this, nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Would you bow with me? 
If you're here today and you know the Lord Jesus, you say, Pastor, how do I embrace the voice of sacrifice? How do I take the, the posture of Mary? Let me just encourage you, look to the cross. Philippians 2 says, have this same mind in you. You'll only pour out your life if you see first that Jesus poured out his life for you. And that's what will motivate your obedience. What would it look like today for you to take something beautiful he's given you and just spill it out for him? What, what would it look like for you today to just take something that is precious to you, something that's valuable, something that the world would say, oh my goodness, what a waste. What would it look like for you to take that and just pour it out for Jesus? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus in this way, maybe you, you would be willing to say, Pastor, I've been living out the Judas impulse. I've been living life for what I can get out of it. Let me just tell you, there's hope here. Jesus died for that too. Jesus poured out his life on the cross for the forgiveness of all of our sins, including the sin of self-centeredness and putting self first, even the sin of betrayal, the sin of seeking to get out of life, only what's good for you. That's a sin that Jesus will forgive if you would just be willing to come to him and take your life and say, I'm gonna lose my life so that I can find a new life in Christ. If you've never done that before, you have the opportunity to do it today. At the end of our service, there'll be people in the lobby wearing badges. They can talk with you about how to find life in Christ. Look to the lamb. Become part of the flock. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your blood for your sacrifice, for your life poured out for us. Lord, I pray there's anyone here today who's never experienced forgiveness of sin, that they would leave behind that voice of Judas. They would embrace the posture of Mary and find redemption in you. Lord, for those of us who know you as Savior, God, I pray that you would form in this people called Moberly Baptist Church a people that look like Christ who are willing to just give our lives away for you. Spirit, do that in us. We pray it in the name of Jesus.